Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. This episode of Counselor Toolbox has been sponsored in part by Foundations Events. As the behavioral health industry evolves, the need for collaboration is greater than ever. Join Foundations Events at the Innovations in Behavioral Healthcare Conference, June 20th and 21st in Nashville. Focused on listening to both the patient and provider, this conference offers two days of sessions that follow the journey from meeting the patient where they are to helping them find recovery. Special pricing for licensed clinicians is available with the opportunity to earn over 20 CEUs. Visit foundationsevents.com slash counselor toolbox for more information and to register today. <clears throat> Howdy do everybody um, doing our sound check for today. So, you know, if you can hear me great If you can see my lips moving and no sounds coming out that's the problem All right for I see a couple new names So just real quick during the presentation, please feel free to put in your two cents About what we're talking about if you've got something to add if you've got questions I love having interaction in the chat room and I will be monitoring the chat room as we go through um, at the end of the course you can log into allceus.com and go into the classroom take your quiz and print your certificate the PDF of the PowerPoint is also available for download in there I think those are the big things so let's go ahead and get started <clears throat> hi I'm dr. Donnelly Snipes and I'd like to welcome you to treating addictions and borderline personality disorder symptoms now, you all know that one of my soapboxes, if you will, is the fact that people can display a lot of personality disordered symptoms without necessarily having a personality disorder. Personality disorders are still very um, unfortunate diagnoses once people get them because they're perceived as being incurable and basically um, some agencies won't even allow people in their program if they have certain personality disorders which is which is unfortunate because you can see with especially the work of Marsha Linehan that a lot of these symptoms 
can be addressed and people can learn healthier ways of acting and reacting no matter how pervasive that symptom is so we really want to look at the symptoms themselves and to use something from the contextual cbt that we talked about before look at the function of those symptoms how do those symptoms at one point or another how did those symptoms protect the person or how were they functional for the person so today we're going to review the characteristics of borderline personality disorder and addictions and we're going to talk about how similar they are working in co-occurring disorders for two decades you know I've seen a lot of people who when they are in early recovery and I define early recovery as the first year a lot of their symptoms are very cluster B esque if not borderline esque but would I say that they meet the criteria would I diagnose them with borderline personality disorder no you know I think maybe half a percent of the people that I've worked with have ever that I have I ever given a, an official borderline personality disorder diagnosis to and personally I refrain from making that diagnosis diagnosis until they've been in recovery for at least a year I want to see once their neurotransmitters balance out once they have a somewhat healthy support system are these behaviors and symptoms still as pervasive we're going to explore the functions of these symptoms in the past and in the present and identify interventions to help the person more effectively manage emotions and relationships because that's really what we're talking about here in intervening so both people with addictions and people with cluster B or borderline personality traits tend to lack a stable sense of self if they aren't someone's something then they're nothing with borderline personality disorder you know that's not something that is uncommon for us to understand the lack of a sense of self and weak ego strength in people with addictions a lot of times and maybe they had a good childhood growing up or whatever but they have gotten into this place in their life where they have their self-esteem has kind of gone to crap and they have become codependent in some ways they're afraid of abandonment they are in relationships that are totally based on conditional regard if you do this for me then i will like you so we see how as their environment changes their sense of internal reality and being good enough and smart enough and all that kind of stuff kind of goes out the window it becomes I'll be your friend if you can do these three things for me people with both issues often feel unlovable for who they are the guilt shame or just that lack of a stable sense of self they really don't feel like they can say hey I'm lovable for me love me or, or or don't but that's okay they need other people to tell them they're okay they need that external validation and with people with addictions sometimes that validation in a certain sense actually ends up coming from the addiction because that makes them feel better if they're not getting external validation from other people and people in both areas tend to have a constant fear of abandonment we know this is true with people with borderline characteristics a lot of people the majority of people with borderline personality disorder issues or symptoms have had significant traumas in their life have had significant issues of abandonment so this is not uncommon and this is not um, 
confusing to us how they could experience that. People in who have addictions may have had okay childhoods or not, but they may still fear abandonment. When they are in their addiction, at a certain point, people may start setting boundaries, that tough love. They may be pushing people away or people may be backing off because this person is engaged in their addictive behaviors and it's too dysfunctional, to which the person with addictions perceives that as, as abandonment. Either way, we have people who are desperate for interpersonal relationships of some sort, and oftentimes they become very unhealthy relationships. As a consequence of this fear of abandonment and a lack of a stable sense of self, needing other people to tell you that you're okay and to be somebody for somebody else, to be somebody's girlfriend, to be somebody's husband, to be somebody's, you know, fill in the blank. You're not okay just being. You have to be somebody's fill in the blank. Combine that with a fear of abandonment, then you have people who often lack emotional boundaries. They have difficulty not taking on or overly experiencing other people. So if Jane is in a room with Sally, Jane may take on the same emotions as Sally in order to you know, validate Sally's feelings, but also to kind of feel accepted. So if Sally's angry about something, then gosh darn it, Jane's going to get angry about it. Anger is often used to control others and is rewarded. When we think of our typical borderline personality disorder scenario where the person is thinking dichotomously, they either love you or they hate you, if you're doing what the person with borderline personality disorder characteristics wants and likes and they feel appreciated, they love you. And if you're not, then they will use anger and control mechanisms to manipulate you into doing what they want. We see similar things in addictions. When the person with the addiction isn't getting their addiction, isn't getting their needs met, a lot of times they will use anger. They may lash out. Just like the person with BPD may lash out and self-injure, for example. A person with an addiction may lash out and actually drink at someone if they're an alcoholic. You know, they may say, you know, you made me do this. Look what you made me do. So there's a lot of blaming and externalizing and anger and guilt to manipulate. Both types of, or people with both types of diagnoses have emotional discontrol. They have inability to self-soothe, which is often accompanied by impulsivity. It hurts so bad, they have to make it stop somehow. And it could be through self-injury, it could be through risk-taking behaviors, it could be through substance use. And they often, kind of going along with this, lack other coping skills. You know, if they had those skills, and hint, here's your first intervention, if they had those skills, then they might be able to start choosing alternate behaviors. The first step is to help them get to the place where they can feel without having to react. We'll get there. They have relationship problems. When you're in a relationship and you have an unstable sense of self, you're constantly seeking validation, you're fearing abandonment, you know, just that in and of itself can create lots of issues with jealousy and anger and irritability and clinginess and enmeshment and all that kind of stuff. So you often see very unhealthy relationships. You also see people who are afraid of abandonment um, 
or and have an unstable sense of self needing to be somebody's something so much that they put aside you know all of their values all of their needs all of their wants and they get into these unhealthy relationships because it's better to be in a relationship and be somebody something than to be nothing at all because of all this stress they often have physical health problems and complaints you know you have high blood pressure um, autoimmune diseases yada yada lots of stuff and cognitive distortions are reinforced when they think nobody loves me and I'm not good enough for who I am then and they get in a relationship with any old person who comes along that will validate them as you know as a something then what if that relationship ends it just re reinforces the fact that they're not lovable they're not able to look and go well you know maybe it wasn't me maybe it had something to do with that other person they have difficulty stepping back and looking and seeing the forest for the trees so to speak so the first thing we need to do when working with people with uh, any of these characteristics is identify the most salient symptoms what's their function and what are alternate ways to meet that need so if they have extreme fears of abandonment and they tend to be they act out impulsively when they start fearing abandonment okay we understand that's what's going on because they're fearing abandonment so what are some alternate healthy ways to meet that need what can we do to help them address that abandonment issue so we identify what it looks like for that person not everybody who has borderline personality disorder is also going to cut you know they may drink they may go out and drive their car as fast as they can and engage in some other impulsive behavior they may withdraw completely it depends on the person so when X happens we want the person to be able to articulate how they feel when they start fearing abandonment for example how do they who, how do they feel when they start thinking that somebody's gonna leave them what do they start thinking what do they start telling themselves when they start thinking that a relationship is gonna going to end what are their urges when all this is going on what is their you know behavioral what do they want to do behaviorally and what do they do right now what do they do when they start feeling like they're going to be abandoned what do they do what is their autopilot reaction remember we talked about that before reaction is a repeating of action so it's that autopilot response and how is that behavior being maintained when you do that what are the benefits why is it you know if you do that that you do it again obviously there was some sort of reward there generally it, the behaviors ended up manipulating someone else back into the relationship or helping the person feel safe or protected in some way and what are other ways to get the same benefit so again going back to the example of abandonment what are some other ways we can help people feel loved and accepted without having to rely on somebody else to provide that for them so these frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment the person knows how to exist as a role such as being somebody else's spouse or parent in addiction a lot of times we can call these codependent traits where the person feels like they have to rescue if they're not rescuing somebody they don't know who they are their whole identity is tied up in being the savior for somebody else 
And as we've talked about so far, preventing this abandonment means preventing death or complete dissolution. If I'm not somebody's something, then I'm nobody's nothing. So I've basically just kind of dissolved. If they don't have a sense of self, who are they outside of being, outside of their roles? Who are they? So what does, what do these frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment look like? Well, the first one, they tend to be hyper-vigilant and hypersensitive to rejection and criticism. They're always watching because as soon as they start get crit getting criticized or somebody starts to reject them or re reject an idea, then that may mean they're getting ready to be abandoned. So they're hypersensitive to protect themselves. For people who grew up in environments where their caregivers were not available to them or you know relationships terminated you know we want to look at in what ways does being hyper vigilant to criticism protect this person in what ways in the past if they were abandoned did that cause them harm and obviously emotionally it is devastating if a really when a relationship ends but in other ways in what ways did it cause them harm so now it is logical that their brain goes okay we were in this position before and we got abandoned or, or or whatever so now we need to protect from that that way we are safe and it all comes back to being safe what is the function of the behavior that helps the person be emotionally physically interpersonally safe once they're hyper vigilant they notice these cues and it can be somebody you know you're eating at the dinner table and somebody makes a, a weird face when they take a bite and is like, you don't like my cooking. You don't like what I made. And then it can be an all-out explosion. Where does this anger come from? Well, anger is a power play. It's the fight part of fight or flee. So the person is often trying to control those in their environment to prevent abandonment. It's like, okay, I need to prevent you from rejecting me, so I'm going to get angry and prove to you that you need me or that you've got problems too, so you're not all that in a bag of chips, whatever the motivation is. They can act out to control through guilt and manipulation. So sometimes it's not anger that comes out. It's not this rage that lashes out. It's, look what you made me do. If you wouldn't do X, Y, and Z, then I wouldn't have to drink, cut, do whatever. So this manipulation guilts people into staying around because it makes everyone around them feel like it's their fault that this person is struggling. It also makes people feel like, you know what, this person is so unstable right now, I just, I can't leave because if I do, that'll send them over the edge. That guilt and manipulation is, is prominent. And we do see this a lot in addictions. When we see people relapsing or we see people in early recovery, like early, early recovery, and you know, if you leave me, then I don't think I can stay sober. Or you get into a fight and the person goes out and drinks and comes home and says, well, if you wouldn't have been helicoptering over me and making me feel like I was on display display and being watched all the time, then I wouldn't have. That blaming 
is very similar to what you see in some of the manipulation in borderline. And emotional discontrol, that kind of goes along with everything. It's a good summary. When these people get angry, when people with addictions get angry, a lot of times it is 0 to 250 in 2.3 seconds flat. Why? Well, number one, their HPA axis is already activated. They are already exhausted. They are at the end of their proverbial rope. And, you know, the substances at this point may be the only thing that are helping them, you know, survive whatever this pain is that they are trying to escape. So when something else happens, it just throws them completely into the stratosphere. People with borderline personality disorder also kind of experience the same thing. And you can also look at it from the neurological standpoint that people with emotional discontrol and a lot of times addictions have trauma histories. So they may have hypocortisolism, which leads to emotional discontrol. So when they perceive a slight in somebody's attitude in some way, they think they've been criticized in some way that can trigger that zero to 250 reaction like that because they don't have middle ground it's either all or nothing and that is overwhelming think about living with that if every time you felt a little bit irritated you became enraged you know it was just it was either you were calm or you were completely enraged how exhausting would that be and how powerless might you feel when you just boom all of a sudden go like that the same thing is true in addictions the person often you know their neurotransmitters are all mucked up because of the the substances or the addiction of choice so they have less dopamine and they may experience more emotional discontrol they go from zero to 250. They can barely deal with life on life's terms, but when they go into the stratosphere and they become enraged or terrified, that's way more than they can deal with. So what do they do? They numb the pain. It makes sense from a functional perspective. Some of the origins of this can be failure to develop a sense of self due, due to tr constantly trying to appease the caregivers. In an addicted family, the hallmark is don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. In a family with a borderline parent, the hallmark is do as I say or else. You know, if, if you aren't the, you know, passive marionette that I need as the puppeteer, then you know, all bets are off. This can also happen to people in later life. It doesn't have to be in early childhood. If they get into a situation where their sense of self is completely broken down. Think about, about domestically violent relationships. Their sense of self is completely obliterated. And their acceptance or their willingness to be or their ability to be as a person is completely dependent on what caregivers or significant others tell them. You can see how this can develop. And if they have an, a history of abandonment, rejection or just conditional positive regard then they've always been taught that they are if they are something to someone then they're filling a need and less likely to be abandoned if i'm somebody's daughter then i am filling a role and you know that role mothers or daughters have mothers and they go together theoretically so 
I'm less likely to be abandoned. If I don't have that role, then I don't know who I am and I don't know why anybody would want to spend time with me. If they have a history of neglect or abuse, it may communicate to the person that they as a person are not worthy of love. Even if it was just, I say just neglect, but even if it was neglect, it didn't rise to the level of abuse. If people experience neglect in, in close relationships, intimate relationships, family of origin relationships, it communicates to them that they weren't worth the other person's time. And so then they start to question, well, what is it about me? Interventions. Help them develop a sense of self and self-esteem. Who are you? You know, let's take a look at it. And I've worked with clients who started using when they were 9, 10, 11 years old, and they may not know who they are. That's something that, you know, they were so caught up in their addictive behaviors or trying to survive their trauma and, you know, that they had difficulty going through some of those stages of individuation and stuff that, that Erickson talks about in his um, psychosocial models of development. So let's help people start developing a sense of self and self-esteem. Who are you? Tell me about you. And if clients look at you and go, ah, I'm me, I don't know. That's a real hard question to answer. And sometimes you feel weird answering it. So you can ask them, if I were to ask your best friend or your uncle or somebody to tell me, to describe you to me, what would they say? And encourage them to really probe down and maybe even interview some of those people. If they have anybody in their life that is trustworthy enough to interview, you know, what would you, how would you describe me if you were going to write my autobiography? What are the top three things that you think of when you think about me? Whatever. You can also have people, if you're doing this in group, interview each other. Because especially if you've been in group for a while, it's not just the first day, you learn a lot about people. And this is a great way to start developing relationships within the group and helping people start understanding their impact on others just for who they are. Help them understand that self-esteem is your, their evaluation of who they are. You know, they look at who they are and if they have bad self-esteem, they look at who they are and they go, oh, that sucks. If they have good self-esteem, they look at who they are and they go, yeah, I'm all that in a bag of chips. It's important for them to figure out what would it make, what would be necessary to make them feel like they were all that and more. They may not know. So another activity I've done is to have people describe their best friend and why that person is awesome. Have people describe their children and why their kids are awesome. Have people describe people that they um, respect. You know, not necessarily celebrities, but people that they respect. And why do you think those people are awesome? Because they're compassionate, because they're smart, because they're, they're what? You know, let's start looking at what things you consider valuable and important and, you know, which of those characteristics do you have? Encourage them to differentiate between who they are and what they do. You can be a loving, compassionate, caring individual 
that has nothing to do with what you do. It's who you are, the values that you hold. Um, so if you do something that is a mistake, if you get fired from a job or you leave a relationship or you whatever, that's what you do. And that may be a mistake. You may not like something that you did. You may make a mistake and not like it. But does that mean you're a bad person? So there's a difference between who you are and what you do. Differentiate uh, or explore what makes someone or something lovable. And I start easy on this one. What makes something lovable? Let's talk about who, and I'll ask the group, who in here has dogs, okay, or horses? You know, generally, those are two real easy to love animals. You know, I have cats and chickens and everything else. So, you know. If it has a heartbeat, I pretty much love it. Um, but we start with those ducks. <laughs> ducks are awesome too. Um, and, and I ask them, what makes those things lovable? Why do you love your dog? Why do you love your horse? Why do you love your duck? Oh, I could tell you stories about our one-eyed duck named Sai-Sai, who is now one-eyed and one-footed, uh, or one-and-a-half-footed. Bless her heart. She's had a rough life. But she's a fighter, let me tell you. She's a fighter. Um, but I digress. We start talking about those, and we put those characteristics up on the whiteboard. All right, then we move on to children. You know, not necessarily your children, but just children in general. What makes children lovable? You know, why do we like watching these videos of babies laughing and what have you? What makes children lovable? What makes other people lovable? If you're going to try to get into a relationship with somebody, what types of characteristics do you look for that you say, you know, this is the kind of person I want to be in a relationship with? Just a friendship. doesn't have to be an intimate relationship. Okay. After, you know, a while, we've got a bunch of characteristics up on the board. And then the big question. All right. Now look at everything we've written up on the board. And which of those characteristics do you have in yourself? You know, my dog Brewster is loyal. He is you know, loving, he is goofy as all get out. And you know what? I'm all three of those too, and I'm okay with that. So I look at those and I go, okay, I can be like my dog. I don't mind that. Encouraging people to take perspective and start recognizing their value as a person, not because of what they do for somebody else, but just because of who they are. And have them identify and address messages and events in the past that communicated unlovability. Who told you you weren't lovable? Who told you you weren't good enough? Where did you get that idea from? Explore the notion of responsibility. Who and what are you responsible for? Many times when people have experienced abandonment, they may feel like they were responsible for the other person. In borderline, the person the child or the adult now, may have felt responsible for the parent in some way. And then the parent abandoned them. In addictions, people may feel responsible for taking care of a person with an addiction. We know addictions are intergenerational. So I've worked with a lot of, unfortunately, you know, kids and teenagers who talk about, you know, being seven, eight years old and tucking mom or dad into bed because they were too drunk, you know, on the, on the couch because they were too drunk to get up and go to their bed and, you know, putting themselves to bed at seven or eight, getting up and making their own breakfast and getting themselves ready for school and feeling guilty when the parent was struggling because they weren't good enough. 
and we want to start talking about those boundaries. Addressing that they're responsible for themselves. Yes, you are responsible for you, especially if, they're, if you're working with an adult. You're responsible for how you choose to feel. You're responsible for how you choose to act. You're not responsible for other people's feelings. Within reason. Um, obviously, you don't want to hurt other people. But if other people choose to get angry, that's okay. That's their interpretation of what's going on. But it's important to be true to yourself. Explore and, and, and remind them in responsibility not to blame. Because other people can't make you hurt yourself. Other people can't make you take a drink. I mean, yes, in theory, they could. But in general, what we're talking about here is somebody who gets into a fight with their significant other and then goes out and gets drunk and says, look what you made me do. Well, that person didn't make you go out and drink. You chose. That was your automatic reaction to being angry. Encourage them to explore and address abandonment and rejection triggers. What things trigger their fears of abandonment? Is it a particular look? Is it, what is it? And then look at, is it about you? If this, like I, I said, sometimes it's a look. Or maybe your partner is coming home, your significant other is coming home, and just really not social lately. They've been flat. They come home. They eat dinner. They go sit on the couch and kind of mindlessly watch TV and then go to bed. They don't want to talk. They don't want to go out. They don't want to do anything. So the person with abandonment issues may go, oh, they're getting ready to leave. They're angry at me. Maybe. But what are some other explanations? Maybe this person, the significant other, is having a really hard time at work. Maybe they are really burnt out. Maybe, you know, who knows? You don't know what's going on inside their head. So encouraging people to not expect that Similar behaviors that are similar to what has happened in the past mean the same thing is necessarily happening in the present. Check it out. It could mean the same thing, but it could also mean something completely different. Relationships are unstable. Well, when there's a lot of abandonment issues, then people tend to be more nervous. They tend to be um, more irritable. They tend to be more clingy and or withdrawn. I mean, they can go... Either way, you know, they're either very clingy or I don't want anything to do with you. Controlling others provides a feeling of safety and predictability in these relationships. So you may have intense, unpredictable interactions. If you do what I want, I love you. If you don't, you're rejecting me and I hate you. This is so common in, you know, in addictions when you see a significant other trying to get their loved one into treatment. There is so much anger and so much rage because they are feeling rejected, criticized, whatever. But if the person goes along and enables them, then, then they're loved. We see those behaviors. Everybody walks on eggshells in these types of relationships. It's just, you know, what's going to make this person, set this person off and make them get angry, make them hurt themselves, make them use again, make them do something else. This goes back to personal responsibility. As significant others, as clinicians, as people who are not the identified patient, we can be aware of their triggers, but at a certain point, we have to give them the responsibility to choose to either get help and choose alternate 
healthier responses or something else. But until that person starts seeking help, everybody else is walking on eggshells because they are being manipulated by a master. And oftentimes there's a Jekyll Hyde. You don't know what person's going to walk out of the bedroom in the morning. So everybody, mornings aren't even relaxing because you don't know. This can happen because children were rejected or the caregiver was just unavailable emotionally or physically at an age in which they were still thinking in concrete, all-or-nothing terms. The child may be thinking, the parent loves me or the parent hates me. If the caregiver was unavailable or rejecting, then the child may think, I am a bad person. I am not worthy of love. And the only way to get what I want or avoid being abandoned is to act out in some way because that actually gets some attention. People with addictions or borderline characteristics often expect rejection and have never experienced authentic relationships with themselves or with others. This isn't always true, but it is something to look at. Who have they ever had an authentic relationship? And have they ever had an authentic relationship with themselves? If they haven't had one with themselves, then they certainly can't have had one with anybody else because you've got to be true, authentic with yourself and know what your needs, wants, and desires are before you can share them with anybody else. An inability to self-soothe is terrifying, and especially if they've got some hypocortisolism or some trauma-related um, sensitivities, then they may go from zero to 250, and it's, it's exhausting and terrifying, and people can feel very helpless when they just can't seem to control their own emotions. And repeated rejections become most salient and support this all-or-nothing thinking. So you've got people who have some abandonment issues. They may have an initial rejection. It makes them angry, irritable. They may start using, which furthers their stinking thinking. They get into unhealthy relationships, may get rejected again. Three or four rejections down the road, they're like, well, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm, I'm not lovable at all. That all or nothing thinking. I'm not lovable. As opposed to, I'm a lovable person, but I'm doing some really crappy things to people right now. Interventions. Use cognitive behavioral therapy to explore and address perceived rejection from others in real life. You know, when this happened, was this a rejection of you? When this person left, was it a rejection of you? When mom, you know, up and disappeared... Was it a rejection of you, or was she you know, hung out, hung, ah, strung out on drugs, and she left because the drugs pulled her away? Was it, were you rejected because of you, or because the person you were in a relationship with decided that they had too much stuff that they needed to deal with first? Were you rejected for you, you know? And, and just keep going back and looking at what are alternate explanations besides you were the person being rejected for just flat who they are. Um, address perceived rejection from the gallery and hecklers. And those are the voices in your head, those unkind tapes, voices that you hear in your head saying, you're never going to be good enough. See, I told you you were a failure. All of those. I want to start addressing those. Where did they come from? And let's figure out how to shut them up. I usually show a little snippet from the Muppets with the two old guys that used to sit in the balcony and heckle the Muppets all the time. 
when I do the group on hecklers. I'm like, okay, we want to learn how to tell them to shut up. And it's okay to say shut up to them. You know, normally that's not a nice phrase to use, but it is okay. You know, I want you to figure out how to get them to be quiet. Ideally, get them out of the, out of the auditorium. But if we can get them to be quiet, that's good. And how can you address perceived rejection from yourself? You know, it's not always those voices and those hecklers. Sometimes we reject ourselves. We tell ourselves, well, that was stupid. Okay, let, let's look at that. And again, separate the who I am from what I did. Yeah, I've done some really st stupid things in my life. It doesn't mean I'm a stupid person. You know, so encouraging them to look at and regularly focus on the semantics of the difference of that. Use contextual approaches to separate reactions to the present. So are they acting on autopilot? Are they reacting, as they would say, to the present? Or are they choosing in the present current actions to address the current situation? Are they acting or are they reacting? Differentiate dislikes of actions and ideas from dislikes of the person. You, know, you can have somebody disagree with you. My, my son and I have very different opinions on certain topics. That's okay. I love him to death anyway. You know, is I love him to death for who he is. And we can have differing points of view on cer certain things. Uh, my friends, you know, I have very different points of views of some, than some of my friends. And that's okay. I love them for who they are. And I respect their points of view. I don't agree with them, but I can respect them. Helping people with addictions and borderline personality characteristics start understanding this difference, this depth of relationships where people can be different, but also very, very lovable. Help people learn to identify and assertively communicate their needs and wants. Well, that's a big one. If you don't know what they are, you can't communicate them. If you can't communicate them, they're not going to get met. If they don't get met, then you're probably going to feel rejected and get angry. Well, you know, you can't expect people to read your mind. So you got to start by figuring out how to read your own mind. And this is where mindfulness really steps in. Also explore characteristics of healthy relationships and help people address the parts that feel scary. And I start with four, honesty, trust, hope, and faith. In relationships, you have to have honesty. So let's start with honesty with yourself to begin with. What feels scary about that? For a lot of my clients, that's terrifying to think of being honest with themselves about how they feel and what they need and, you know, actually paying attention because they've been trying to put their fingers in their ears and just blot all that out for so long. So getting honest with themselves can be scary. Getting honest with themselves about the things they've done wrong and what they regret can be scary. Got to be honest with yourself. And what about being honest with other people? Yeah, you risk rejection. You risk making somebody angry, but you also can forge a, a more open relationship. So talking about what honesty means, what it looks like, what you know, brutal honesty looks like versus, you know, just regular old honesty. Trusting. Again, trust, start with you have to trust yourself first. Helping people learn to trust themselves and what I call their spidey senses. If their head, their heart, or their gut is telling them something ain't right, Something probably ain't right. It's important for them to check. Now, it could be, you know, they're projecting something from the past, but they do need to check that out. Learn to trust themselves.
and then start figuring out how to trust others without just walking up to somebody and going, hi, I'm Donnalise, how you doing? I'm going to just give you all this and trust you with everything the moment that I meet you. That's not healthy. Talking about hope, hope for the future, hope that relationships will go well. You can get too caught up hoping, you know, it'll never end, living 10, 15 years in the future, not paying attention to the present moment. You know, yes, we can hope the relationship lasts, requires a little bit of work. Hope for some people is scary because it brings with it the possibility of disappointment. And faith, back to it again, faith in themselves to do the right thing, to have the courage to do the right thing, faith in themselves to be able to do, take the next step. And then faith in other people. And a lot of people who have addictions or trauma histories have, reason, have a lot of reasons not to have, not to trust or have faith in other people. So it's important for them to identify people who have been trustworthy and people who are safe to put their faith in and help them develop some sort of a faith in humanity, if you will. Self-damaging impulsivity. This is often distraction or escape. In borderline personality disorder, it often acts to help people either get an endorphin rush because they, they need to feel something um, and the world is just so painful right now, or it can help them feel a sense of control, or it's just a distraction because it helps them focus on something besides this intrapsychic pain that they can't do anything about. They can't pull the thoughts out of their head. With people with addictions, you know, we're talking generally about going out and relapsing. What it looks like, self-harm, spending sprees, addictive behaviors, violence towards self or others, and sometimes overly sexualized behavior. This impulsivity, what function does it serve? In what way does it help the person feel safe in the present moment? This often comes from a lack of coping skills in the face of overwhelming emotions and an inability to self-soothe. Interventions, de-escalation and distress tolerance. Help people who have this impulsivity when they feel this, this, these impulse, impulses coming on, give them a toolbox in order to tolerate the distress until they can get into, as Linehan would call it, their wise mind. Help them learn how to self-soothe in healthier ways. Help them learn mindfulness. That will help them identify problems before it gets to the point where they're feeling like they need to engage in impulsive behaviors. Develop coping skills and address vulnerabilities. We're going to talk about those in just a second. Other things we can do just in general, these transdiagnostic interventions, we talked about some of them on Tuesday. People with addictions and borderline personality both have high levels of HPA axis overactivation and corresponding physical, emotional, and interpersonal issues. So one of the first things that you can do with anybody is check how are you sleeping. If they are not, if they are adults and they're not getting seven to nine hours of quality sleep each night, that's probably contributing to their lack of concentration, their depression, their irritability, you know, a lot of stuff that you're seeing, and their difficulty dealing with life on life's terms. If their nutrition is poor, then that may be contributing to it too. If the body doesn't have the building blocks it needs to make the neurotransmitters to help them feel 
calm to make the neurotransmitters to keep their thyroid going and, every, or, and, and hormones and everything else, then they're probably not going to feel their best. If they're in pain, now that partly could be due to poor sleep and poor nutrition, um, but if they've got other conditions that are causing them chronic pain, that will impact their sleep as well, and as well as their mood. We want to help them figure out what can they do for pain management. Sometimes it's ergonomics, sometimes it's physical therapy, there are meditations and mindfulness. There's lots of non-pharmacological interventions for pain management, TENS units, uh, hot tubs, there's the whole gamut of things. They just need to talk to their doctor or their physical therapist. And their temperament. Um, Linehan doesn't really talk about this much with vulnerability prevention, but I do. Extroverts draw their energy from other people. So if they are spending too much time by themselves in isolation, they may feel unhappy. Introverts need downtime each day to regroup. Introverts don't like interruptions. They need some quiet time. They need some space, and that's okay. But if they can't get that, then they don't feel grounded, and they feel very inundated and can feel overwhelmed, which in both cases makes it difficult to deal with life on life's terms. Uh, judgers really like structure. So if you're working in an, an environment that doesn't have a lot of structure and you're a judger, that can contribute to... Um, difficulty dealing with it can contribute to your stress levels likewise perceivers get really bored if there's too much repetition so they can start to get cranky and irritable if they're in an environment that doesn't meet their temperament if you're in these environments that go against your temperament doesn't mean you can't be there but it means you need to understand that this is not your ideal situation and how that impacts you and how do you mitigate that for example for an introvert that was in residential treatment with us 89 people in a co-ed facility that's a lot of stinking people we had picnic tables outside where they could go sit and meditate or do whatever they needed to do to get some quiet time each day to do their assignments to get away from all of the input and that helped them calm down. Knowing that you may need to set some actual physical boundaries to get some quiet time. When we couldn't do that for some reason because it was too cold or whatever for them to go outside, we gave them headphones to put on. And they could either listen to music or white noise or whatever it was. But that way they didn't have the auditory input and they were able to go into one of the group rooms by themselves where they wouldn't be bothered. Transdiagnostic interventions can also include uh, acceptance and tolerance. Teach people urge surfing. You know, remembering the urges come in, they usually crest within 15, 20 minutes, and then they go out. Some people, their urges don't come in gradually and go out gradually. They come in like a bang. So my other analogy is the bee. The bee that lands on your arm, you know, your initial response is to swat it. Let that urge pass. If you swat the bee, it's probably going to sting you. The bee will fly off in its own time, especially if you don't pay attention to it. Encouraging people not to swat the bee. Practice distress tolerance activities with them, and this goes back to Linehan's work, the accepts and improve mnemonic devices. Have people develop a relapse prevention plan that identifies things in each area that they can do when they are feeling overwhelmed, impulsive, whatever 
this can help them tolerate their distress until that urge goes away because distress is an emotion urges are behavioral tolerate their distress till the urge goes away and they can make a conscious choice using psychological flexibility about what the best course of action is teach them mindfulness this helps them reflect on and develop honesty and wisdom it increases awareness of their present moment wants needs sensations thoughts and feelings you can do uh, five four three two one you know that's one of the things that you can do five things you smell four things you hear three things you see two things you can feel and one th thing you taste or whatever another thing I do um, that points out my lack of mindfulness sometimes is take a picture you know go into a room and, and clean it or you think it's clean and then take a picture of it inevitably when I look at that picture I will see two or three or six more things that I missed when I went around and cleaned it the first time teaching people to be more mindful and present in the very moment picture memories and sensations show people a picture and ask them what memories or sensations does this bring up for you or memories and sensations so if it brings up a happy memory all right what does that feel like when you're happy what does it feel like what does it feel like in your hands very gestalt type work what does it feel like in your feet what does it feel like in your tummy you can do the same thing with scents obviously not with people who can't handle aromas if that's not good for them um, and it can you don't have to use essential oils you can use something as simple as vanilla extract or pine salt or whatever but have people you can even have people bring in four or five different things that have smells to them that have a memory associated and then talk about that in group but again have them identify not only the cognitive memory but as many sensations as many sights sounds smells touch taste as they can that go along with that memory do the same thing with sounds and you can also do the same thing in the current in the present moment encourage them to practice noticing their physical sensations their physical cues like being hungry or tired or uncomfortable their emotions their thoughts their urges and their needs help them use psychological flexibility to recognize the influence of the past on the present in the present I feel I think and I want to so my thoughts my thoughts my feelings and my urges this is where I am right now and that's okay I'm accepting it without judgment with that being said similar situations in the past let me tell you about those let me tell you about similar situations I've had in the past let me tell you about what I learned about myself others and the world from those situations and let me tell you what I did to protect myself or to survive those situations that's the past and those that's the lens that I'm looking through right now now in the present situation let me tell you objectively like a fly on the wall what's going on let me give you the facts let me tell you how I'm different now let me tell you what my current needs are and what the best use of my energy is you know those are all things that um, can be helpful and if somebody doesn't want to explore the past because it's too painful that's fine you know I'm not going to push them past their comfort zone but if they can even acknowledge yes I had something similar in the past and then you can say okay you know let's eventually let's look at how that is influencing the way you interpret things 
in the present moment help them see the connection so then they can start thinking about dipping their toe into that into that pond and psychological flexibility the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference again in the present moment accepting what is what i'm thinking how i'm feeling and what my urges are it's it is what it is this is the situation so let me tell you about the reactive behaviors the things i want to do right now my autopilot behaviors this is going on my um, knee-jerk reaction is to want to fill in the blank my reactive thoughts and feelings um, what I am what I what I'm thinking right now you know if I'm angry if I'm having thoughts of wanting to somebody to suffer whatever it is my reactive thoughts and feelings they are as they are we're not judging them we're just getting them down okay in the present my active behaviors if I don't want to do that reactive behavior, what other things could I do to address this situation in the present that might help me move towards being the person I want to be and having the life I want to have? And remember, RML stands for Rich and Meaningful Life. And what kinds of thoughts and feelings could I develop, could I nurture, that would help me more in the current situation and help me move towards a rich and meaningful life so for example if you're dealing with somebody who is just rude and unpleasant and hateful you could get angry you could feel rejected you could want to lash out or you could take a breath and you could try to put yourself in their shoes you could have pity on their situation because it sounds like they're really struggling right now you can have acceptance of the fact that you know what they're having a bad day not about me they're just having a bad day and that was unfortunate choosing and putting those things down I find it's really helpful for clients to actually write these things down for the first few weeks in order to get it down on paper and to see it in order to just in, in addition to just thinking about it so they can see that they actually do have a choice people with borderline personality disorder and addictions first need to learn how to safely deal with intense feelings so they don't relapse specific issues which may trigger intense feelings and inter and interventions include poorly developed or unstable self-image which has often been associated with excessive self-criticism and feelings of inadequacy so what do we do we help them develop their concept uh, of their self and differentiate the what's from who's the what I do from who I am they may also have interpersonal hypersensitivity so we want to help them desensitize by looking for alternate explanations to why that person might have had a snarly look on their face or done that we want to help them develop self-soothing behaviors so they can learn to re-regulate after they've become dysregulated and we want to help give them cognitive behavioral interventions to address cognitive distortions and intense unstable and conflicted close relationships marked by distrust neediness fear of abandonment and difficulty trusting people due to alternations between feeling appreciated and condemned to address this we want to help them learn how to be honest with themselves about their wants needs and fears develop the ability to trust themselves learn what it means to trust others and learn how to help set healthy boundaries all right are there any questions and I know there were a couple so I'm going to scroll back and hit those real quick um, most of the we know that addictions 
uh, do tend to have some sort of a genetic component to it. So there is some sort of a nature nurture. But borderline personality disorder seems to be much more of a learned response or a survival response to traumatic situations. Um, as far as pharmacological interventions, if somebody is seeking help with their um, emotional dysregulation, yes, there are certain um, medications that can help while they are developing the tools they need to deal with life on life's terms and get their HPA axis healthy again and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that is that can be helpful. One of the medications that some of my clients have found very helpful and others have not has have been has been um, Buspirone, which some clients des describe as their their screw it drug, which is why they don't like it. Just makes them not care about anything. For other clients, it helps them not go from zero to two fifty. It helps them feel like there's some middle ground in there. Um, what is in the back? right corner of my office um the chair um let's see let me stop share my office is messy i apologize i don't know what you're going to be able to see i have a chair with a blanket on it and um an eagle and then above my head i have a book and a ceramic bunny rabbit yeah the blanket over there is the um the blanket and, and the uh, eagle all righty, everybody, have an amazing weekend. I hope you get to go out and do something fun, and hopefully the weather is nice in your area, and I will see you on Tuesday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.